ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Thursday the 8th of February. I'm Cyber Elaine coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Israel's rejected a Hamas proposal for a ceasefire, with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declaring it delusional. He says total victory in Gaza can be achieved in months. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been playing a role in the negotiations. The conflict's death toll has passed 27,000, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Israel's goal is to destroy Hamas, which led a surprise attack on southern Israel on October the 7th, killing 1,200 people and taking 253 others hostage, dozens of whom are now likely dead. Global Affairs Editor John Lyons is in Jerusalem. He joined me a short time ago. Sabro, what Hamas wanted from this deal was that over a period of 45 days, a third of the hostages would be released, then another third after another 45 days of ceasefire, and then the final hostages would be released or the remains of the hostages who have not survived would be released in the third phase of 45 days. Benjamin Netanyahu, a short time ago, has made an address to the country, a primetime address, has basically ruled out any such deal, said it would be crazy and would invite another massacre. The continuation of the military pressure is a necessary condition for the release of the hostages. To buy into the delusional demands of Hamas that we hear now, not only would not bring the release of hostages, it would only invite another massacre. It will invite a major disaster on the state of Israel that none of our citizens would want to accept. So this is a serious blow to the efforts by the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, who's here in the Middle East at the moment and who very much wanted to get a deal like this through. As you say, Antony Blinken's been there trying to secure a ceasefire deal. What does the international community do now? Well, the problem for the international community is Israel's internal politics. It's all about Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition. He has elements on the far right, such as his Minister for Public Security, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is saying that he was essentially bring down the coalition government of Benjamin Netanyahu if any deal like this is made with Hamas. His view is that Hamas has blood on its hands and Israel should not make a deal with it. So Benjamin Netanyahu is trying to juggle the far right who are threatening to bring him down at the same time as this extraordinary pressure coming from Washington to to do a deal on the hostages and, more permanently, to bring an end to this war. Now, Mr Netanyahu's ruled out any arrangement that leaves Hamas in full or even partial control of Gaza, and he says Israel's the only power capable of guaranteeing security in the long term. Has he got any wriggle room, given those comments? Well, he did say as well that uh, Israel in future reserved the right to go into Gaza and take military action whenever it felt it was necessary. And so you have Antony Blinken, the US and the UK and Australia and many other countries who are urging a two-state solution here, that essentially there be a Palestinian state alongside Israel. But Benjamin Netanyahu personally is opposed to that, and he has a very right-wing government that is also implacably opposed to that. So in a way, the international community is now clashing up against Israeli domestic politics. The Israeli Defence Force believes that dozens of hostages are already dead, as you have noted. There's considerable pressure on Mr Netanyahu to secure the release of hostages. How secure is his support domestically? 
By the day, he's losing support. Latest opinion polls indicate if an election were to be held now, he would be seriously beaten. So there is a growing movement against him, led, as you suggest, by the families of those hostages who are very angry. Now, 31 families have been informed in the last few days that their relatives who are hostages in Gaza have not survived. Now, that's devastating this country. In Israel now, that's resounding that could those hostages have been brought out alive had there been a different strategy? And so Benjamin Netanyahu is under extraordinary pressure, both from Washington and from the families of the hostages, as well as the Israeli public. It's John Lyons there in Jerusalem. Australian workers will be able to ignore after-hours calls from their bosses when the federal government's sweeping industrial relations laws pass Parliament later today. After intense negotiations, the government's finally secured the final votes it needs for it to become law. It will also regulate gig workers like food delivery and rideshare drivers for the first time by introducing minimum standards. Here's political reporter Nicole Hegarty. When food delivery driver Utsav Batrai jumps in the car to fulfil an order, he knows he's under the pump, but he's never sure what he'll be paid. I've worked 10 hours and made less than $100. We have to drive till we're exhausted because we're not making minimum wage. The role is marketed for its flexibility, but after more than two years working in the sector, the Canberra-based driver says that's far from reality. We're pressurised every single day to deliver ads quickly as we can so that we're not deactivated. The pressures of the job can also be dangerous. At least 15 people have died while delivering orders. But gig workers like rideshare and food delivery drivers will now be offered a set of minimum standards, if shown to be employee-like. With the backing of Independent Senator David Pocock, the government has secured the support it needs to pass its closing loopholes industrial relations legislation. The concern about cost gets raised. Most people I've spoken to say, well, (laughs) if it means that the person delivering my pizza can actually put food on the table themselves, if it means that it's going to be a bit more expensive, then I think that's a cost we're going to have to wear. Like, how do we have a system where we've got these services that are relying on people who are so desperate that they're doing a job that they, they can't actually make ends meet? Senator Pocock says the changes will address wages and safety. The hope is having minimum standards will ensure that yeah, people can, can get paid for the work that they, they do. The bill also establishes a clear pathway for casuals to ask to be made permanent and a right to disconnect, preventing employees from being disadvantaged for not answering calls or emails outside of work hours. The Senate will vote on the legislation later today. Utsav Batrai, meanwhile, hopes the new protections can give workers like him a little more power in the workplace. This reform will make our jobs safer and fairer, and that's all I want. If we have minimum pay rates, we're not asking for much. If we have only minimum pay rates, we'll have more freedom about when we want to work and for for how long we want to work. And that's I, I, that, that would be an actual flexibility that the gig platforms always market. Gig worker Utsav Batrai ending Nicole Hegarty's report. What should happen to statues commemorating Australia's colonial past if they're vandalised or damaged? Last month, a bronze statue of British explorer Captain Cook was sworn off at the ankles, prompting debate about whether it should be resurrected or removed. 
Last night, a Melbourne council voted to replace the 110-year-old statue, disappointing one councillor who wanted a community debate about its future. Oliver Gordon reports. We're looking at uh, another vandalisation to that statue in St Kilda and there's nothing left but his feet. Two weeks ago, in the lead-up to January 26, this statue of Captain James Cook on Melbourne's St Kilda foreshore was toppled. Passers-by describe what remains. We're looking at a plinth with a, a missing statue, just some feet. Well, it's not here at the moment. It's been sawn off. Well, uh, Captain Cook's boots. <laughs> yes, the body's gone, but he left his boots behind. There's little argument over what's left of this monument, but there's more contention over what should happen next. Something should go in its place, but I don't think putting it back up is the right situation. People are angry. If, it's to, if it was taken down once, it'll be taken down again. No, I don't think he's responsible for invasion day. I don't see why it's necessary to try to uh, reinvent our history and deny it existed. I'd put the statue back. Tonight, refer to item 14.2, the Captain Cook statue. Port Phillip Council is responsible for the statue. In a meeting last night, it voted down a motion to seek community feedback on what should happen to the defaced monument. Prior to the vote, a local Indigenous group submitted the statue should be repaired immediately, a sentiment echoed by a number of local residents. For the sake of our children and our very rich and wholesome country's history, stop trying to cancel it and change it, allowing these acts of vandalism to go by unpunished and worse, rewarded by not reinstating the statue at the earliest time. Another community group suggested amendments. The statue itself, unlike best practice, should actually have a, a, a commentary about Captain Cook and the um, invasion, as the Aboriginal people see it. Robin Nyagui is the Port Phillip councillor who unsuccessfully proposed going to the community to ask what should happen next. I mean, the motion tonight was to um, repair and reinstate the, the statue, but then also to have a consultation about its location and context going forward um, to get a better understanding of how the community felt about the statue and how they wanted it to be presented um, which I'm very disappointed to say failed. And how does that make you feel? I guess I kind of speak as a millennial and many, many people in my generation who would say that they want to have these conversations about history and are kind of frustrated when the democratic, legitimate ways of having these conversations are kind of shut down and prevented. Um, I think it just kind of leads to the kind of vandalism, unfortunately, that we've seen. We need to be able to acknowledge both parts of our history. Paul Payton is the CEO of the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations. He's disappointed the community will not be consulted before the statue is repaired. From my perspective, it does represent a dark part of our history as far as Europeans occupying this country and the history that is associated with, with that. But non-Indigenous Australians would have, a, would have a connection to it from a different perspective. So... It's important that we, we come together and understand and, and respect each other's history and, and, and views on this landmark as well as our history more, more broadly. The Indigenous leader says a formalised community discussion could have led to more understanding, not less. It gives us an opportunity to move forward as a nation and as a community. Just in this instance, it allows us to, 
to do that. So by not creating those opportunities for those conversations, we stay in the status quo. The St Kilda statue isn't the only public monument of Captain Cook in the spotlight. The city of Yarra, another inner city Melbourne council, has removed a stone memorial to Cook after it was toppled and spray painted. The council's now weighing up whether or not it should be replaced. Oliver Gordon. Most states and territories have banned commercial sunbeds because of links with skin cancer due to the dangerous levels of UV radiation. But a new type of sunbed claiming to leave its users with a longer-lasting tan and improved skin is causing fury among some oncologists and skin cancer researchers, as Julia Andre explains. One week and a bit, it's my 26th birthday, and I sit here and I don't even know whether I'm going to make that. It's a skin cancer ad from 2007 many Australians may remember. The story of Victorian woman and melanoma patient Claire Oliver. She'd used sunbeds 20 times before she was diagnosed with melanoma. By sharing her story shortly before her death, Miss Oliver's campaign led to the ban of the commercial use of sunbeds in most of Australia by 2016. But that success may have been short-lived. Over 15 years later, the doctor who treated Claire Oliver, Professor Grant MacArthur, is outraged that a new type of sunbed called a calarium is popping up at beauty salons in parts of the country. These are just solariums under a guise. You know, it's a cloak and dagger approach that they're taking. I don't think they're clever at all. One Australian website selling calariums advertises the beds as using UV and red light for smooth skin and a beautiful tan. Calariums do apparently claim to use a narrower band of ultraviolet light. However, both UVA and UVB, the two major bands of ultraviolet light, both can cause uh, DNA damage to cells and induce skin cancers, so they're basically not safe at all. Queensland Health told the ABC that they're aware of calarium services being offered at several locations and are investigating whether they should be considered banned under the state's Radiation Safety Act. Professor Anne Cust, a cancer epidemiologist from the Melanoma Institute of Australia, also believes calariums are simply rebranded sunbeds. I think there's a risk that people using them feel that maybe they're safer and that not true and that's a big worry I think. These machines sometimes they're told that they'll stimulate collagen production um, which is no evidence that that will be the case in fact um, UVA actually breaks down collagen you know I I think maybe there's misinformation. On Queensland's Gold Coast, life is ruled by the sun, sand and surf. I think that I was like most young people at the time and just really naive. Obviously, I knew about the risks of the sun, but you just never think that it's going to happen to you. Four years ago, local resident Courtney Mangan was diagnosed with skin cancer. After multiple surgeries and ongoing treatment to keep her aggressive melanoma at bay, she can't understand why anyone would choose to tan either in a sunbed or on the beach. Often vanity trumps our health. It definitely lends more to that sun-kissed skin tone that everybody seems to be obsessed with and that just filters down from the beauty standard in Australia. Gold Coast skin cancer patient Courtney Mangan, that report from Julia Andre. It's been a summer of chaotic weather, from dry conditions and stifling heatwaves to record rains and flooding, and it's left many who live on the land feeling exhausted, 
and frustrated. Australians are being warned that they'll have to prepare for more climate whiplash as climate change drives new weather patterns that are unprecedented and difficult to forecast. Gavin Coote reports. Barely 18 months after his dairy farm was submerged in floodwaters, Max Wake is pretty blunt about how this summer's panned out. Bloody terrible. <laughs> um, very, very dry. Probably, apart from 2019, one of the drier ones we've had. I've got a bit of age on me. 1965 was another bad one, but I guess this is probably coming in third. It's been a summer of extremes, with storms, bushfires and now intense heat across the New South Wales Hunter Valley where Max Wake operates. Holy hell, it's been hot. Last Sunday was 42, Monday was 40, and the, the biggest problem with all that is it didn't cool down overnight. And you've got to understand that dairy cows need to cool down overnight and they weren't able to do it, and we dropped about 600 litres of milk in two days. Hopefully they'll come back up again now with the cooler days, but it's been horrendous on the cows. Yeah, the Hunter Valley and lower mid-coast are uh, been in not such a good way. Queensland's a different story. In Queensland, the weather's been even more difficult to read. When the Bureau of Meteorology declared an El Nino event in September, graziers like Bruce Curry were gearing up for a summer of dry weather. Within months, his cattle property in western Queensland was experiencing bushfires, then heavy rain and bogged livestock. We had a, a lightning strike fire in November. I had two graders, a dozer, 18 people, six mop-up units, and that fire had beaten us. And we were, our own situation, we could have potentially lost the whole of our property. And um, it was only the fact that a storm came over the top of that fire that put it out. Otherwise, we were in uh, real trouble. So you've had dry conditions, fires and heavy rain all within pretty quick succession. Yep, all within about 48 hours. The livestock are even feeling it, like they're going from one extreme to the other and they don't have time to um, be in a condition to tolerate it. So, you know, we're getting stock losses, we're getting conditions that are harder to manage and, um, yeah, we're, we're, gonna, we're paying the cost of it in a big way. Climate change has been blamed for driving these erratic swings from sweltering heat to devastating downpours. Dr Simon Bradshaw is the Director of Research at the Climate Council. This summer really has been an experience of climate whiplash for communities around Australia. We've been hurtled from extreme dry and hot weather to flooding rains and back again. It hasn't been the summer that many were expecting, but it has shown many, many markers of a planet made warmer through the burning of fossil fuels. And what we've done at this report is looked at these key events through the summer, traced them back to what we see going on with our changing climates and to really bring this together so that we understand the extreme urgency of acting faster on the root causes of the climate crisis. With predictions the nation's most dominant climate driver, La Nina, may reappear as early as mid this year, Dr Bradshaw warns it could get increasingly difficult to prepare for extremes. That is sadly the reality of living on a planet that we've made hotter and more dangerous due to the burning of fossil fuels. And the lesson from this summer is that we have to work much harder to get our emissions down and, of course, to keep our communities safe. It's a reality that Western Queensland grazier Bruce Curry thinks the entire nation should be thinking about. It's not just uh, a few whinging farmers. You know, if I'm losing stock and my cost of production's going up and there's less food available, that affects everyone. Queensland grazier Bruce Curry, Eddie Gavin Coote's report, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. 
Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Living in Australia, we know there's a lack of competition. Two big supermarkets, two big airlines, and just a few more banks and electricity providers. And we know because of that, well, we get ripped off. Today, investigative journalist Adele Ferguson on how big companies trick us into paying more and how we can stop them. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.